Thanks, John. You may be seated. <laughs> I can see there's a little confusion there, sorry. <laughs> but would you pray with me nonetheless? Lord, thank you for uh, feeding us with bread from heaven this morning. Um, you are our hero. You did what nobody before you could, could do and nobody since could without your help. And uh, we just are amazed by you and we welcome you and we're glad to, um, to, uh, to ponder, Lord, the things that you've done for us because you love us this much. Amen. So this is entitled The Temptation of Jesus. Um, but I find that in my own reading and often in the way that I hear it, we just quickly convert this into the temptation of ourselves, the temptation of Steve. In other words, we rush right to, oh, this must be about my temptation. And then we think about how we can meet our temptations better by doing what Jesus did. So I wanna cool the jets on that line of thinking for a minute. And I, I wanna suggest that's going too fast. To, to kind of read the story of the temptation of Jesus and just think, think immediately about how can I overcome temptation is missing the point. Because in fact, to be a little provocative or maybe a little cheeky, this passage says nothing about how we're supposed to overcome temptation. It doesn't give any guidance about how we're supposed to overcome temptation. It doesn't even talk about our temptation at all. Now, it does talk about those things. And we'll get there but let's not get there too quickly because we're gonna miss the main thrust of the story and we're gonna miss the most important part which is the gospel. So before we change this into a story of our temptation and how we meet temptation, let's just think about the temptation of Jesus for a minute and, and, and dwell on this because um, the, it becomes the story of our temptation only in this sense that Jesus' struggle as a man is human, is our struggle. So it captures or it, it brings together our, the story of our temptation and it describes very much the root of every temptation. And the root of every temptation really is this. It's the temptation of Satan to contradict the word of God who says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's at the root of every single solitary temptation. It's relational. The reason we get tempted is because there's a problem in our satisfaction with our relationship, fundamentally with God. And of course, the same could be said on the human level as well. Satan came not just to tempt Jesus with all kinds of things. So let's look at the context for a second. You'll see that the context is coming right off of Jesus' baptism and what's the last thing we hear in chapter three, verse 17? Is behold, a voice from heaven says to Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And what does Satan rush right in to say? What's the first thing he wants to contradict? He says, if you are the son of God, then blah, blah, blah. It comes right that fast. Now, this is the root of all temptation. It's to contradict that word which says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the fundamental question for all of us this morning, really, and I'll just start out of the gate with it, is do you know that you are a child of God with whom he is well pleased? Now, not just intellectually, but do we feel that? 
I'll use the word feel a little bit in the way that sometimes we feel hungry. Okay, we can talk about hunger abstractly, but we all know what it's like to feel hungry, and that's when we eat. When we're not hungry, we can, we can refuse food because we're not hungry, but when we feel hungry, we wanna eat. Well, do we feel that we are God's son and daughter with whom he is well pleased? The temptations we're talking about here aren't just the particular temptations. This is the sort of temptation Jesus encounters, which is the pressing down hard on the fundamental purpose that we're here. That's the sort of temptation that we're talking about. Um, The temptation here is on Jesus' mission. Jesus isn't just, this isn't a story about gluttony. This isn't a how to overcome gluttony. That's not what Jesus' temptation was. It's not pride. What Satan was pressing down upon Jesus was the mission of God. Because that's why Jesus came. All right, so the kind of temptation we're talking about first and foremost is the temptation that causes us to say, God has no purpose in my life. That's the temptation of denial. It says, lead me not into temptation. The temptation is to deny that God is who he says he is and that he has any purpose in your life. That's a fundamental temptation. All other temptations kind of come from that one. Satan isn't coming into Jesus just with a thing. He's tempting Jesus on his very identity. And that's why this is epic. This is an epic confrontation. Jesus, or God, the Father, has just told the Son, behold, my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and Satan comes right in to say, if you're his Son. Now, we'll recognize that voice of Satan from the very first time we hear it in the Bible, which is the if statement. Well, if, did God really say that? If God is so good, why would he withhold something so good from you? he says to Adam and Eve. Now, Jesus' unique mission is really on this point. So, in other words, when God says to Jesus, behold my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, he's saying that to everyone who is in Christ. When we're in Christ, we are beloved sons in whom God is well pleased. Jesus restores the relationship that was broken in Adam's sin and which we all experience. He's come to restore that relationship. And when God says to Jesus, when God the Father says to God the Son, behold my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, that's the solution to the problem. Jesus does that. He gives the gift of sonship to every child of God. And that is what Satan is wanting to contradict. That. He'll do it by these tactics, but he's coming against this thing really strong, and that's what he comes at in you. Every day, Satan wants to undermine that truth among all others. He wants to say you are not a beloved son. By the way, for women in the room, Uh, The the reason why son is an important word to hang on to is just a little bit of background there is because the word son, particularly in ancient culture, has this idea of 
heir. We're, we're heirs. So we're beloved sons and daughters, but just don't lose that sense in which, yeah, but there's more coming. We're heirs of something beautiful. We're just getting started in what God wants to do in us and through us. And we're going to inherit that fully in the new world. So we're sons and daughters in that relational sense, and we're all oldest sons. In other words, we're all heirs, meaning there's just more coming. There's so much more coming. It beggars the imagination. Paul says we can't even imagine how good it's going to be. So Satan, Satan can't stand that. He wants to rob us. That's one of the things Jesus says. He comes to rob and take away what is rightfully ours in Christ, no matter how bad we screw up. That's the whole point of the gospel. Doesn't matter how bad we screw up. We're saved by grace. So Satan wants to come in and threaten that, and that, that because he knows that relationship, when that's strong, then we're strong. When we know and feel the love of Christ in us, we're strong. The joy of the Lord is our strength. That's where the resource comes from to overcome all kinds of trials. It's the relationship. So just like the first relationship, you know, Satan's not actually all that creative. He's got kind of a stock portfolio of things. So he said, well, food worked the first time. Maybe food will work the second time. So uh, it comes out with, you know, a piece of fruit. Now it's a loaf of bread uh, because Jesus is hungry. But, uh, but the thing that really stings is that conditional statement, if you're the son of God, then command these stones, do some magic. And Jesus says, and this is very interesting, the first time we hear Jesus speak, he's speaking scripture. It's his father's word is the first word that Jesus speaks. And I think that's very special. Again, it, it's something that gets to the heart of Jesus' relationship with his father. Jesus is for not one single discernible second undermined in his relationship. I don't know what Jesus felt, doesn't say, but there's no indication that from start to finish, his confidence in his relationship with the father is ever threatened. And so he can say very clearly, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And God, or Jesus, knows that word very, very well. It's a special word in, you know, word is in the Bible because God creates the world through the word. He speaks the word and the world comes into being. And, and the, the, John says that Jesus is the word made flesh, the last verse in the Bible is that Jesus is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. It's very special. So he's not just saying anything trite here. He's saying man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word is very relational. He's almost naming himself. It's a word of promise. It's a word that establishes purpose and meaning and vision. God's word isn't just like a bunch of principles and things. God's word is a promise that's given to us. God's word is creative. He says, I'm creating you now and and there's gonna be a future to you. 
and there's gonna be a new world for you, and there's gonna be a new home for you, and there's gonna be a new mission for you, and all the tears that you've cried in this world are gonna be dried up, because you're gonna be living in a new and a renewed reality. That's the word. It's not just a rule. It's, it's actually a promise. It's precious. That's the word that sustains us. Do you know that word? It's very important to know the story of the Bible, that there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and then a renewal. And that book hasn't been written for us yet, but it will be. God talks about the book of life with our names in it. And that's the word that sustains us. And the one who speaks that word is the one who loves us, and we love him. So that's why that word sustains us, and we're not hungry for all the other words, and there are many of them. So um, Jesus calls us back to that kind of word. Remember, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me. Or how about this word to us, I am my beloved, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. That comes from Song of Solomon. That's the kind of passion that the word gives in our heart. That's the voice that we hear is the voice of our beloved. And sometimes it's hard to hear, isn't it? But that's the point, is that Jesus heard it and Jesus becomes it and Jesus now dwells within us. The second temptation is uh, Satan tries this again. He says, if you are the son of God, he wants to hammer this home, all right? He's gonna try it again. And now he thinks to himself, I'm gonna take him to something that he wants, all right? Um, And he takes him to the holy city of Jerusalem, uh, the temple. And uh, of course, again, the city of Jerusalem, the holy city is a metaphor for the same thing that we were just talking about, which is this promise Jerusalem is the city of God's presence. It's where the temple is and where Jesus and Satan are now standing. It's, it's the metaphor of the promise, the new Jerusalem that's coming. It's the city of peace. Shalom, one of the most special words in all the Bible. It's, the, it's, the, it's when things are as they ought to be. And now this is really awful. I, this is actually quite a horrifying story here. Um, if you have your Bibles and you turn to Psalm 91, you'll find just uh, how bad Satan is. Sometimes you just forget how bad he really is. Psalm 91, which is this, which, which Satan quotes, okay? He, this is a beautiful psalm. Now, I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but it's full of this relationship that we've been talking about. Here's the first two verses. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. It's so beautiful. And then at the end of the psalm, and this is a unique feature in this psalm, God speaks in the first person. And he says at the very end of the psalm, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. 
When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. I I hope you know Psalm 91 well, and I hope you pray it a lot during this time. It's so beautiful. And the audacity of the enemy to strike with those words at this moment is so arrogant, but it gets worse. Because if you look at 11 and 12, these are the verses that Satan quotes. He will command his angels concerning you. That's 11 and 12. Do you know what verse 13 is? You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Have you heard those words before? Where have you heard those words before? At the very first, Genesis 3, God says to Satan, the man will trample you underfoot. And Satan stands before Jesus right on the very edge of that verse. What a taunt. What a horrifying, awful thing. If you think Satan could care less about you and what you hold dear, you gotta, he could care less. He's gonna go right up in the very face of the Son of God and wave that verse right back in front of his face. It's horrifying. I, I can hardly believe it when I read it. That of all the scriptures, Satan's gonna bring Jesus right up to that one. And Jesus doesn't get perplexed. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't tell Satan, yeah, you don't have the slightest clue what's going to happen. Satan can't tell the future. He has no idea. And, and Jesus just stands there in his strength and in his power, and he says, it is written, now this is interesting to me, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now that's a quote, and he quotes it accurately, but I wonder, I wonder if Jesus was reminding Satan who his Lord is. Satan is not God's equal. This is not yin and yang. Uh, This is not Luke Skywalker and his dad, all right? This is God who has no competitors. Satan is not, God is not fighting Satan. He's not perplexed by Satan. Satan's a servant. That's another mystery for another day. But I I want a servant, servant, serpent, servant. So so I wonder if Jesus is reminding him that. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The third temptation, Satan just loses his cool. He doesn't quote scripture. He just goes right to the heart of the matter which is that he wants to be worshipped, all right? There's no, there's no finesse in this now. Satan just jumps right. He loses patience. He cuts with the scripture. He cuts to the chase. He says, Jesus, just worship me. He, he tempts Jesus with what is rightfully his. He says, okay, look, I'm going to show you everything that's mine, all these kingdoms, and it, you know, in a certain way, you know, these kingdoms are Satan's. We've given into it. You know, um, but they're not his forever, and they're not his alone or on his authority. That's what gets him. He, he knows he doesn't have total authority. He knows he's a losing. And so he craves to win over the second Adam, you know. And he shows Jesus exactly what Jesus wants. You know, again, another horrifying arrogant, 
thing because what is Jesus' message? It's the kingdom of heaven. And so Satan says, okay, I'll show, I'll show you kingdoms. You, you're praying for the kingdom to come on earth. I, I got it already. And just bow down to me and I'll be the one that just, I'm, the, I'm your guy. And of course, Jesus now, again, you know, is, he cuts to the chase too. And he says, be gone, Satan. See, who has the authority here? It's not for a moment, Satan. Not for a split second. Jesus is so obedient in the sense that he, he submits to this process because he's doing it on our behalf. You know, as a man, he suffers in every single way we do as humans. He has never encountered a temptation that we have not encountered. And he's able to do that because he stood there as a man and then he tells Satan to be gone. And of course, Satan goes. He says, get thee behind me, Satan. And then he does end, thankfully, with the word of God. And again, he says it for us, but he's speaking to Satan too. You shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve. And although Satan is not serving God willfully, I think he knows he has no choice. He serves God even when he doesn't want to. He's just put in his place. But see, that's how Satan experiences it. For us, we're elevated. What a wonderful place for us to be. But hidden in Christ, worshiping him, loving him, hearing his voice to us. As Eric prayed this morning before church, Jesus has occupied this place for us. We, we don't have to succumb to the terror of having Psalm 91 robbed away. That voice that we hear from God is something that Jesus keeps. He keeps the door wide open and it's the devil that leaves. He's the one that has to go away. And behold, angels came and were ministering to Jesus. The relational closure. Jesus was tempted and his father comes and ministers to him. It's just so beautiful. And friends, so that's our application. We don't defeat the devil. We're no, mat we're no match for the devil at all, actually. He's quite good at what he does. But Jesus defeated the devil. And it's Jesus in us that defeats the devil when we're tempted. It's folly for us to think that we can overcome temptation by tactics, as though we could do what Adam could not, or what Israel could not. The first application is not to do what Jesus did, but to know what Jesus knows. It's to know who Jesus knows. That's the first application. Everything else will flow from that one. We can't do what Jesus did first. First, we have to know Jesus. That's the first thing. And if you try to do the second thing, doing what Jesus did without the first thing, you're gonna fail every time. It's it just not the way to live life. It's not what God has told us to do. First, we have to know him. Here's how Jude says it. When's the last time you read Jude? Can you find it? Jude's easy to find, actually, because it's right before Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible. Jude says in verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up 
in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Jude has a lot to say about living in times of temptation. That's why I was drawn there. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Do you know why that's so special? Number one, because you're commanded to, to love God. If you ever needed a little bit of extra oomph, that's a good reminder. Hey, we're supposed to love rather than just feel guilty or some other alternative. Build yourself up in the love of God. What is it that the Holy Spirit says to us? Do you know what Paul says? The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Do you know that verse? That's what the Holy Spirit says in us. Or here's another way of saying it that Paul says. The Spirit cries in our spirit, Abba, Father. Spirit bears witness with our spirit. So the spirit in you is there in order to help you feel that you're attached to him, that you know him, that you feel his love, that you're in relationship with him. That's the first thing, says Jude. Obedience follows that, but it doesn't precede it. Obedience can help, like we don't always feel like being obedient doesn't mean we shouldn't be. We also know Christ by obeying him. But fundamentally, we have to start with building ourselves up in the knowledge and love of God because that's exactly what Jesus came to do. Came to tell you that you're a beloved son with whom God is well pleased. You'll see at the very end of the story, you know, Satan eventually learns his lesson big time, but he's not done yet, Revelation says. He's gonna try one more, one more time and he'll fail again. But I love what Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 16, the very end of the story. He's got the 11 disciples there on the mountain, you know, which is kind of symbolic. Um, the disciples went to the mountain which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. And he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And that's what you feel when you're worshiping him, when you love him, because Jesus is our hero. He won, and he's winning for us right now. He's winning for us. The author of Hebrews says this in chapter four, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That's our response when we're feeling tempted is to go to him first. What does that actually look like? Well, there's all kinds of things that we can say in our prayer to God. We can just start out with by being grateful. Lord, I'm thankful that you have defeated Satan in my life. You love me. You won't let anything separate me from your love. God, you will give me everything I need, all my daily bread. Jesus, you are not ashamed of me when I fail. 
God, you are going to carry out your mission in my life to completion. God, you can fix every broken thing. You can say that to the Lord about your issue, about your temptation. That's what you need to do first. There are things we can do after that, but the things that we do after that won't, be, won't help if the first thing isn't repaired, which is your relationship with God. Let him speak to you about that. We, don't, we may not have the power in ourselves or the solutions in ourselves, but he has the power, and that's the point. I wanna end, because I know Father Eric is urging us to renew our prayer lives. And you know, the temptation of Jesus is like the bulldozer that paves the way for the Lord's Prayer. And I think after reading through the temptations, you'll find the Lord's Prayer, very familiar words in there. And you'll hear in the Lord's Prayer that sense of relationship, that sense of dependence, the sense of asking the Lord to do for us what we can't do in our own strength. The first word out of our mouths in the Lord's Prayer, two relational words, our Father. Isn't that a blessing? Our, all of us, we're in a body together. We're doing this together, inherently relational. Our Father, not our judge, our condemner, our tempter, he's our Father who art in heaven, and we worship him just like the disciples worship Jesus. We pray for our daily bread, right? Give us this day our daily bread. We, uh, we pray that the Lord will not lead us into temptation, which means that the Lord will not put us in a place where we're fundamentally and forever undermined and become hopelessly despairing and we feel that God is not involved, we pray, Lord, keep us from that place. Bring us instead to the place where the power of your kingdom is made real in our lives because we know that Jesus in us has conquered and Jesus through us will conquer and we can even move out in that same mission to bring that same message to others. So I just pray that during the season, we'll discover that first work first, that it's the relationship that God has already repaired, whether we feel like it or not, he's already done it, we don't have to fix that, it's the awareness of it. Let the Lord speak to you. Give him some time and space to speak to you. Take a walk, listen to some music, have some conversation with friends, and let the Lord build up that confidence and that boldness and the truth that he's in you and he loves you. You're his beloved child, his beloved son, with whom he is well pleased. Amen.